the clock on my wall says 9.30. So thank you all for coming. And um, we're going to start with some rather sad news. And for those of you who don't know, um, last Thursday, Andy Hoover, Kristen's husband, uh, was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And this came out of the blue. He just had a pain in his neck. And so this coming Thursday, they're going to do a biopsy to discover where the cancer has started. It's already in his kidneys and other places. So um, I just wanted to show you the, where you can read his story and keep up on it. Uh, I've, Dolly and Christine and I tried to get it so that I could show you on the internet. But if you go to carrionbridge.com and put in Andrew Hoover, you can follow his story. And so um, I just want to take a deep breath here and offer a word of prayer for their family. Um, I understand I, I was I was working the Seahawk game on Sunday and I didn't get to church. But I understand that the sermon was about Jesus in the boat in the storm. And um, and and since we had just had that passage last week. Um, I've been thinking about um, Kristen and Andy and their son Benjamin, who's 19, uh, in that boat. And so um, just pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who knows uh, all the smallest details of our life and that you care intimately about them. I just pray, Lord, that as Kristen and Andy and Benjamin go through this together, that they would feel that peace that Jesus felt in the boat as the waves were tossing him around, as he was asleep, enjoying his rest in you, our Heavenly Father. So we just ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... Uh, I'm Kristen today, <laughs> since she couldn't be here. And as I read these chapters and studied them, this song came to mind. And the reason it did is because I learned it as a child, you know, and those gray cells, they're in there. So I thought, how many of you know this song? I'm the only one. Uh, okay, so I'm going to sing it for you. There were twelve disciples, Jesus called to help him, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James' brother, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and Bartholomew. He has called us to, he has called us to, we are his disciples, I am one of you. He has called us to, he has called us to. We are his disciples. We his work must do. Okay. Well, since... Yeah, you think that's pretty funny? <laughs> okay. Yeah, somebody prayed that I'd be funny today. And I said, oh, Jesus is going to get mad today. So let's try to be funny. Uh, okay, so here, first of all, we're just going to do a quick review. Why Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is king and how he proves it. He proves that Jesus is king in chapter 8 because he has authority over illness. 
and he is compassionate when he shows his authority over illness. And as we were texting with Kristen, and Christine and I were texting this week about what Andy is going through, Christina said, I pray that those who treat you will be filled with compassion. And I said, bingo, that's it. When we are sick or have a disease, we need someone to treat us with compassion, and Jesus always does. Doctors don't always do that. So if your doctor doesn't do that, pray that he will send a nurse that does that, or that he will send a chaplain that does that. So somebody who will show you compassion in your hour of physical need. And then he has authority over his disciples. He has authority over nature. That was the rocky boat incident. That he is, has authority over unseen spiritual powers. That's when the, the demonic men came towards him and he cast the demons into the pigs. Then he had authority over sin when he told the young man who was paralyzed, your sins are forgiven. And then to prove that he had the authority to do that, he said, take up your bed and walk. And the young man did. And then we saw that he has authority over his critics. He has authority in restoration. Remember when I titled this, The Two Dead Daughters? Because there was the, the one dead daughter, Jairus' daughter, and he said she's died. And then the woman who had eight or 12 years, whatever, how many years of bleeding, touched his garment and she was healed. So he has authority over restoration. And at the end of chapter 9, we saw that he had authority over the harvest. And it says when he looked over the crowds, his heart was filled with compassion. His heart was breaking for these crowds. And he said that they were confused and aimless like washed sheep with no shepherd. And he said, what a huge harvest there is. And he said, pray for harvest hands, which we're doing today. And if you have names of people who might want to be help Christina and me, bring them to us. We are praying over, we already have three or four suggestions, so we're praying over who will come and help us when Kristen is gone. Kristen is very welcome to come back. We can have five or six speakers, but we're just praying that God will bring the right one for you, for him, and for us. So he said, pray for the harvest hands. He said, how few the workers. And he, then he prayed, and it says that his heart was filled with compassion. And I, what I love is when we see Jesus' deep emotions, which we're going to see plenty of today. So no sooner had he prayed that prayer than the prayer was answered. And out of that throng of people, he chose 12. And he called them and into the right fields and sent them out. And he gave them, these 12, special powers to do exactly what he had been doing, to uh, battle with the unseen forces, to have power over sickness, and, and he said even to raise the dead, like he did for Jairus' daughter. And he wanted them to care for the tenderly bruised and hurt lives around him. And then it says, this is the list of the 12 he sent. So I'm going to go through the 12 and tell you a little bit about what happened to them next and how they ended. First we had Simon. Jesus is going to nickname him Peter or Rocky, because Peter means small rock. Rocky. 
By the Holy Spirit, he united the early 120 believers after Pentecost, after Jesus had raised from the dead. His preaching and miracles resulted in the church growing to over 5,000 in like one chapter of Acts. He was twice in jail in Acts and released. He preached extensively in Asia Minor and ended in Rome. He was crucified upside down. He wrote 1st and 2nd Peter, and he is always mentioned first. We learned last week that he went into Peter's home and cured his mother-in-law. And we also have a little tradition about Peter's wife. Paul says that she traveled with him on his missionary journeys with Peter. And then it is said that they were both imprisoned in Rome, and as she was led off to be executed, he shouted at her, remember the Lord. And then he said, don't crucify me right side up, crucify me upside down. He is always mentioned first. And then Peter's brother, Andrew. He was already a disciple of John the Baptist, one of the first to be invited by Jesus. It is thought that Andrew ministered in the Black Sea and then in Armenia before traveling to Asia Minor and finally in Greece, and he was crucified slowly without nails, just hung there until he died. Then we have James. He and his brother John were called Sons of Thunder. They're part of the three that were closest to Jesus. When he was transformed, he took Peter, James, and John. He was executed by order of Herod Agrippa during Passover in 42 BC, and this is in Acts chapter 12. But I love to think of these boys as the sons of thunder. Papa Thunder, I don't know if you have been around a loud, boisterous fisherman, but their voices carry, and I imagine that I have known some people on boats who occasionally get loud and lose their tempers. And so I imagine this was a very lively, boisterous family. And so I love Jesus calling them, you guys are sons of thunder. I just love that. Anyway, all right, the next one is John, the brother of James that I just mentioned, also a son of thunder. He was at the foot of the cross, the only disciple there, when Jesus was crucified. The rest had all run for cover. Jesus, on the cross, entrusted his mother to John. He went to Ephesus. He wrote the Gospel of John, the letters of John, and was exiled to Patmos, where he wrote Revelation. I have been to Patmos, Island in the Aegean Sea, but it has no natural water supply. So all the water for the people who live there has to be boated in. John Mary lived the longest uh, to 90 or 100, and it was said that he did take care of Mary all her life. Philip. Philip was reputed to have gone to Samaria and Gaza. In chapter uh, 8 of Acts, he encounters the Ethiopian ministry. That is one of my favorite stories to tell, so I hope you all know it or read it. He lived in Caesarea, where Philip and Luke visit him in Acts 21. He had four virgin daughters who prophesied, and he was crucified in A.D. 90. Then we have Thomas, who is going to be called Doubting Thomas later on. He preached in eastern Turkey, Armenia, and in 40 A.D. went to northern India. 
He died from stab wounds near Madras in 72 AD, and there are believers in northern India who still say that he is the one who started their church. Matthew, sometimes called Levi, our author, who I am really getting to enjoy as a person. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew and always referred to himself modestly as the tax man. And then we have James the less, because he was not James the son of thunder. He remained in Jerusalem and was stoned by an angry mob in 62 AD. And then we have Simon and Jude. They traveled everywhere together. They reports say that 60,000 turned to Christianity in Iran. Mobs attacked them with stones and Jude was run through with a spear and Simon sawn to pieces. Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel, was invited by his friend Philip to meet Jesus. He preached in Turkey, Armenia, and possibly Persia. Later in India, he was clubbed, skinned alive, and beheaded. Judas Iscariot, treasurer of the Twelve, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He always referred, is referred to as the one who betrayed Jesus. He hung himself, and he is always mentioned last. All right, so Jesus is going to send out these 12, and I like to think of him as our coach. We are his team, and he's our coach. I don't know... My generation, we didn't play much team sports. The younger generation gets to play team sports. So, and those of you who have children, you know there are good coaches and bad coaches. But my favorite coach is this one. <laughs> he says, it's about being the very best you can be. Nothing else matters as long as you're working and striving to be your best. Always compete. It's truly that simple. Find a way to do your best. Compete in everything you do. And Jesus' words are going to sound very similar to this. I'm going to show you how to be your best. Always be on your toes and never give up. Matthew gives Jesus practical coaching, which is rich and profound in details, to us. He wrote it all down. And as in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks with a sense of urgency to this team, and as Matthew is making note of it, because Matthew gets the sense that future generations are going to need this coaching. The first thing that Jesus says is go only to the lost sheep of Israel. And why he wanted his disciples to do that is to give the descendants of Abraham the first chance to hear about his kingdom coming to this earth so that they would receive him and receive the kingdom. This is not exclusive. This is, I want you to stay in the neighborhood and talk to your own people. And then he calls them lost sheep because they are spiritually helpless and vulnerable. And then he says, proclaim the kingdom is here. The miracles that they would do will authenticate the kingdom and that Jesus is here. Then he says, do what you have seen me do. He preached to the lost sheep. He proclaimed the kingdom was there. He healed the sick and raised the dead, touched the leopard, leper, and kicked out demons. You have been treated generously, he says, so live generously. 
what I have you have seen me do, do, because I'm giving you my power, my virtue to do this. And the you here is a present imperative. Now, do it now, from the virtue, from the power that I will give you. And don't raise money, he says. Don't think you have to put on a fundraising campaign before you start. You don't need a lot of equipment. You are the equipment. So when Hugh and I were first married, we wanted to go into Christian work, and we read this book, George Mueller of Bristol. I won't ask for a raise of hands since probably nobody has ever read it. But this George Mueller of Bristol took care in his lifetime of over 10,000 orphans, and he educated them, and he never asked for money. And there was one time in his life story that I particularly loved because he had this table full of children and no breakfast. So he's thanking the Lord for the food, and there's a knock on the door, and a baker comes in with fresh bread for all of them, and then comes the milkman. His cart had broken down right in front of his door, and he knew the milk would spoil, so he was giving it to them. And here's the thing. I have just met a woman who has escaped here from someplace else. She has absolutely no resources and no money. And every time I sit down and talk to her, she is brimming with thanks to the Lord. She is living from his mouth, his hand, to her mouth. I mean, he has provided housing and food and friends and employment. And there's something very exciting about living that way. And if you've ever lived that way, you know how exciting that is. So then he says, stay in modest homes. You just find some place. Don't go to the fanciest place. Be content with modest homes, because these are the people that I want you to give greetings to. And the Jewish greeting is shalom, peace. I want you to bring peace to that house. And it's so... I, I wish we could just say peace to each other all the time. Wouldn't that be nice instead of, hi, how are you? <laughs> Don't be pushy, he says. Be courteous in your greeting. If they welcome you, be gentle in your conversation. If they don't welcome you, withdraw. Don't make a scene. So as I'm walking from the stadium to my parked car, and this happens every single time after the Seahawks game, and people are leaving, they're going to the trains and everything. This man stands over there with a bullhorn, shouting about all of you going to hell. <laughs> yes. So it doesn't sound gentle to me. <laughs> but nobody's stoning him either. So that says something for our country. Don't call attention to yourself, he says. This is hazardous work. I'm assigning you. You're going to be like sheep. Sheep. Our first animal reference, running through a pack of wolves, our second animal reference. So don't call attention to yourself. And then another reference, be as cunning, be as wise as a serpent, as a snake, and inoffensive as a dove. These four animal metaphors that Jesus used to describe who we are. Lost sheep, running through a pack of wolves, with wisdom, but innocent. That's what he wants us to be. But remain bold. And then... Don't be naive. They're going to smear you. They're going to question your motives and your reputation just because you believe in me. Probably you've had people say to you, oh, you're a Christian? Why do you want to do that? I mean, this is what he's talking about. Okay, then he says, 
don't be upset with opposition. He talks a lot about persecution. This persecution that we will endure and that these men will endure and that the first century Christians endured and people are enduring. There's the woman who has in, been in jail in Pakistan that she has been enduring. This kind of persecution is going to happen and Jesus is telling us that it's happened. Why is it happening? Because his kingdom is here but it's not yet. That's the, that's the confusion that we live in. His kingdom is here, but not yet. So he knew that this would go with the spread of the gospel. Then he says, don't worry what to say. Now this is not an excuse for teachers and preachers not to study, <laughs> but the right words will come to you. He says, this is a verse <clears throat> excuse me, about fear and fearing when people are going to haul you into court. <clears throat> and they will haul you into court. And the first courts that these men will be hauled into is Jewish courts. So he's telling them, this is going to happen. But don't be afraid. The spirit of your father is going to tell you what to say and to help you to know what to say. So now he is talking about your father, the spirit of the father. He had taught them to pray, our father. And he says, my father. So we're going to learn more about that. And then he says, when you show love, others will hate you. This is a terrible irony that even your family may turn against you. And he says, truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Remember when I taught about the Son of Man? Well, this kind of confused me, so I'm reading all the different theologians. And theologians have six different reasons for why he said that here. So we're just going to live with it. It's just too confusing. Okay. Then he says, be survivors. Don't quit. Don't give in. It's all worth it in the end, he says. It's not uh, success you're after, but sticking with it. And he said, you will be hated because of me, but stand firm. Verse 25 says, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Well, Beelzebub was, Baal was a god, Beelzebub. This was the word Lord of the Flies. This is the god of the dung heap that attracts flies. And people called Jesus that. We're going to see that next week as well. And then he says, be content. Don't be afraid. All will be made known. Don't be intimidated. Go public now. Isn't he a great coach? I can just see him. They're all getting, who's got your back? <laughs> okay. Don't be scared into silence by bullies. There's nothing bullies can do to your soul. Don't fear them. Look to God who holds your entire life, body and soul, in his hands. God cares what happens to you. He says he numbers the very hairs on your head. He cares about the sparrows, but he cares much more. You're worth more to him than all of the sparrows. He loves every detail about you. You are in your father's care. And Jesus, when he says the word father, he's talking about Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. And people get very upset with him when he refers to Yahweh as Father. Your Father, our Father, my Father. 
there's a, there's a pastor that I read, Bob Utley, and this is a quotation from him. It must have been particularly irritating to the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day to hear him, an unofficial rabbi and Galilean upstart, use the word father to refer to Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Even more so to allow the outcast, the lepers, the outcasts, the tax collectors, to be included in God's family. And then he says, stand up for me, and I will stand up for you before my Father in heaven. And he says, don't think life is cozy. Uh, things are going to get tense. Even in relationships. I mentioned before about tension in families and in relationships. We're going to have an example of this in Matthew 16. Jesus is going to tell his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. And Peter is going to stand up and say, no, Lord, that can't happen. That's not going to happen. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. And if you don't think that was a tense moment among the 12, just think about it. Or Peter was put in his place. Okay. And then he says, find me, find yourself. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. Verse 38 says, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Wait, did I miss something? Okay. Anyway, so this is a graphic call to total commitment. And this reminds me of another book that greatly influenced my husband and me when we were young, and it was a book about Jim Elliot called The Shadow of the Almighty. And he was a young man who wanted to take the gospel to the Alka Indians, and he was killed. Later, his wife would go to those Indians, and they would all become believers. But Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And more coaching instructions. Anyone who accepts you accepts me. We are intimately linked in this harvest work. Anyone who accepts what you do accepts me. This is how we are linked with Jesus. If, if I am accepted because of Jesus, Jesus is accepted. That's how intimately it is. Jesus and the Father are like this. So we are intimately with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Don't be overwhelmed, he says. Start small. It might just be giving someone a cup of water. It's a large work, but little details are what God sees. Being kind, being gracious all the time. I mean, it's just, you know, you don't get angry when you drive. You are gracious when you drive. So the smallest act of letting the other car in is seen by your Heavenly Father and makes you a true apprentice. You won't lose out on anything, Jesus says. You'll get there just the same. The other day, I'm riding my bike to the pool, and there's a place on 140th where there's no bike lane. So there's a, a Cheryl sign, right? So I'm riding along, and somebody passes me so close they could have hit me, right? And then they turn into the Safeway. And I'm right here, and I think, I wanted to go in and say, you know, you could have killed me, but thank you for not killing me. I mean, 
I might not have been that nice. <laughs> so then we have this interesting story, what happens next, is that John is in prison. Now, remember who John was? He's the one who baptized Jesus. And John and Jesus were born like six, seven months apart. And they were cousins. And they knew about each other all their life. John is the one who baptized Jesus. And he's in prison. And he says to his disciples, go ask Jesus. Are you the one we've been expecting or are we still waiting? And in other words, would you tell Jesus I'm here in prison and I'm waiting and, and I'm not seeing anything? And is all this in vain? I mean, the theologians, none of them want to say anything bad about John Dowding or anything, but I read this passage when we got the worst news about Andy Hoover. And I'm thinking, uh, where are you? Are you going to come? Are you going to deal with this? Are you the one I've been expecting? And so Jesus says to his disciples, to John's disciples, go back and tell John this. So they go back and they say, he said to tell you what's going on. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the wretched of the earth learn that God is on their side. And then he said, tell John, you're blessed if you don't stumble on account of me. Because I don't come. Because you're not going to get out of prison. Because you are suffering and I am not doing anything, apparently, about it. You're blessed if you don't stumble on account of me doing my Father's will. So, what does it mean to us? If Jesus doesn't come and rescue you, still believe in me, he says. And then Jesus honors John. He turns to the crowds. And this is a major point, a turning point, with John in prison. The nation has rejected John's call for repentance and Jesus' call for repentance. They have rejected the kingdom that Jesus has offered, that John said was coming. And as he begins talking about John, as I read it, I hear Jesus' anger building and building and building. First we see his compassion for the crowds, and now he's angry about the sin the selfishness that is keeping them from accepting his kingdom. And he says, with a question, who, would, did, who was John? Did you go out to see a reed in the wind? No, he's a prophet. And he's the one Malachi said, I'm sending my prophet ahead of you to make the road smooth for you. No one, Jesus says, is greater than John. And then he says that John is the Elijah that you've been expecting to introduce the Messiah. In other words, he's Elijah, I'm the Messiah, and you still don't believe. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven, he says, has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Are you listening, he says? Are you really listening? You have ears, you have ears, you better listen, he says. He is Elijah, I'm Messiah. And those who don't get this, he says, are like spoiled children whining to their parents. John came fast 
and he said, and I came feasting. He's called a demon, and I'm called a drunken friend of sinners. If John had his doubts about Jesus, Jesus had no doubts about John. This generation rejected them both, and the more he talks, the madder he gets. John's in prison and criticized, and Jesus is out healing, and his disciples are out healing, and he is still rejected. And this makes me angry, too, because I want all to receive Jesus so we can be done with death and cancer and sin. Amen? Amen. Okay. Are you there? Hello. <laughs> All right, now he really bursts out in anger. And he says, woe to Chorazin, woe to Bethsaida, woe to Capernaum. He is really mad now. This means doom. Doom to these cities. And why? Because they had his miracles. They had him, and they rejected him. And he denounces them because they didn't come to him. For the miracles that were performed in you, had they been performed in Tyre and Sidon, Sidon and Sodom, they, those people would have repented. Jesus' anger and compassion are deeply connected to his intimate relationship with his Father. His Father and Jesus and the Spirit do not like injustice. And injustice isn't rooted in rejecting Jesus. And he says, goes on about Capernaum. Remember, that's where Peter and Andrew and James and John were all from Capernaum, where his mother-in-law, where he healed her. And you, Capernaum, he said, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you're going to go down to Hades. No city had more exposure to Jesus than Capernaum. What is it today? A museum over a heap of rubble. They only thought about what Jesus could do to benefit them. They didn't want intimate relationship with him. They wanted his physical healings. This begs the question, do you still want him if he doesn't heal you, if he doesn't fix your situation? But then it's like Jesus is, is in his middle of his anger, all of a sudden he says, wait, I have to reorient myself to my father. And he says, I praise you, Father. He stops everything and starts to pray. And he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. What does this prayer sound like? The prayer he taught his disciples. This is the prayer I pray when I hear the news in the morning. When all it looks like everything is going to hell, I stop and I say, my Father in heaven, I love your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. This is, Jesus is praying this. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the sophisticates and know-it-alls and spelled them out clearly to ordinary people. Not the religious people, just the ordinary people. Not to King Herod, to the ordinary people, to the shepherds, the ordinary people. Not the A-list people. They didn't get it. They thought they had it all together. And then he says, yes, Father, that's the way you like to work. I don't know about you, but I like a God who works with ordinary people. Jesus has already told us how the Father likes to work. He likes to work in secret. He likes to work in small details, giving a cup of water. He likes to work with fishermen. And he likes to work with outcasts. And now Jesus turns from his prayer, and everything about him has changed. So the next time you are really 
did for Jesus. He talked to his father and his tone changed. He was angry, but now he's compassionate again. The father has given me all these things to do and say, he says to the crowd. This is a unique father and son operation, coming out of father and son intimacies and knowledge. This intimacy and knowledge of his father is what gave him the impetus to go through the cross. It says the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? Being related again with perfect intimacy with his father. No one knows the father, no one knows the son the way the father does, nor the father the way the son does. But I'm not keeping it to myself. I'm ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is showing us his compassion again for intimate relationship. And then he's going to say, come to me. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? That's Eugene Peterson's take on this. Because these people were being beaten up by religion. He says, come to me. The answer is yes, they are tired, they are weary, they are burned out. Come to me, he says. Get away with me and you'll recover life. He says, come to me all you are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. This is an echo of Jeremiah's promise in 3125, which says, I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. So then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Get in the boat with me. Remember? Jesus is resting. Get in the boat with me. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. This is kingdom rest and this reality is now. For he says, my yoke is easy. You have seen the way I work my yoke. This is the metaphor for working with Jesus. And he says, it's the unforced rhythm of grace. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. That's that yoke. It's going to fit perfectly. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I'm going to live you my rest, for I am gentle and humble of heart. You will find rest for your weary souls, lightly and freely. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But from now on, starting with Christina teaching next week, we're going to see more and more that he came to his own people and they did not receive him. But to everyone who receives him, he gives his authority, his virtue, his power.